before we jump into the passage today, just a quick kind of reminder. So resurgence is this season of life that we've stepped into. It's about revisiting the past to take hold of the future. And resurgence is kind of coming back to like prominence and life and activity and what God's doing. And so uh, there's three main elements of what resurgence is about. The one that we are experiencing this morning is called learn which is we're going to walk through the book of Acts together over the next year and really looking at what did God originally intend the church to be 2,000 years ago and what does that look like for us today? How is that reflected in the way that we approach church today? That's the learn portion. Now, the, the most probably the most important part of this journey is not what happens here. It's what happens in community groups during the week because that's where we're going to dive deeper into what we've talked about on Sunday morning and really digest this is what God is saying from the scriptures about what this means for my life. So if you're not in a community group, you need to get involved in one because it's a big part of the whole season of resurgence over the next year. And then the third thing, when you came in today, you saw this little card. Uh, it says love on one side of it. On the back, it says space. This is this part of resurgence is nine months, and it is a monthly process where we are intentionally taking steps to position ourselves to build relationships with people who don't know Jesus, to learn to love them so that God can, through our relationships, extend his love to other people so that people come to know Jesus. This is the primary way that we're finding people come to Jesus in our church. Most people in our culture, probably a good 95% of people in our culture, do not come to church if they don't know Jesus. That used to be true. It's not true anymore. So now we have to be obedient to the gospel, which says what? Go. Go where? To your neighborhoods and to your coworkers and to the places that you connect relationally. And so we're taking each month, there'll be a specific step that we're taking. This, this, this month is probably the easiest one, but it actually may be the hardest one. It's called space, which means to make room for people in my life, what do I have to do? I have to take something out of it. Because the biggest excuse we give to anything in our life is, I'm too busy. I don't have time. Yeah, that's a values decision. That's not a time decision. So what we value, we always have time for. So uh, I was listening to the great theologian Kobe Bryant this week on, uh, on success. He was actually speaking to University of Alabama football team that's had some success. And he said something that really caught my attention. He said, listen, he said, every season he would come into as a basketball player. He played 20, 20 seasons in the NBA. It's incredible. And he said, every season I would always, before we really set into like pre-training camp and getting in condition, he said, I always had to do something extremely important that actually contributed to my success. He said, I always had to edit my life. He said, I'd look at my life and I'd see what my goal was for the year. And he said, anything that didn't fit into where I was going for the year had to be eliminated. I had to edit out of my life, which is what? It's values. Now, if you're here last week, you heard me say, there's nothing more important in this world than people. That's it. Not possessions, not career, not job, not house, not, not anything that we put, but the people that God loves, which is this world. And he's placed us here and he still has us here because he wants to people to know who he is. And the way he does that is through his people. So this is a, a values thing this month, space. Pray, say, God, what do I need to eliminate? Because next month we'll start getting more specifically about steps that we're going to take. So this morning, as I, as I mentioned, we're going to be in, in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. And we're going to talk about the purpose of our story. Last week was the story continues. And that is a reminder that, remember, the book of Acts didn't start in chapter 1. The book of Acts started in chapter 1 of the Gospel of Luke because they're actually one book that we've separated into two. Last week, or Luke is kind of part one, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, and then part two is what? Is now he sends the Holy Spirit for us to now do what Jesus did. So now we move into part two, which is what God's plan was for the beginning of time in the book of Acts, and that's what we're digesting as we walk through this. So this morning, though, as we, we look at, into the, the, the story that we'll read through, we're going to read through probably a more famous passage, particularly in verse 8, about the Holy Spirit and what God's going to bring to bear. 
But the challenge that you and I have is, is one of the things that when you read the Bible over and over again, you forget the significance of what you're reading. So what we're about to read are the last recorded words of Jesus while he was still on the planet, just before he ascends back to the Father. Anytime somebody shares their last words with you, they have slight significance. Wouldn't you agree? They're extremely important. And so what Jesus says is so important for us to listen. And the reason it's important for us to listen is because our life is full of distractions. We have a million different things competing for our attention. And so when something, something comes along that's really important, we struggle with sometimes listening and dialing into that. Why? Because there's a million different things going on. So l let me put it this way. So about a week and a half ago, the staff kind of took a, a little, like, spontaneous kind of trip to a, 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 this amazing place called Howlin' Rays. It's in Chinatown. So this is, uh, this is uh, the group that went. And uh, uh, Howlin' Rays has some of the most amazing chicken you will ever taste in your entire life. In fact, there's, Harold makes sure that we could see what it looks like. So, uh, but but there's, a, there's a challenge with Howlin' Rays. Uh, no matter you don't, please don't get distracted. By the way, we're not having any tri-tip today, so just put it on hold, okay? But, but this amazing thing is that it's so good, everybody knows it's so good, and you have to wait in line. So we went down there, we got, before it, we got there before it opened, and normally uh, Harold had been there a few times and John Looney, and they said, that takes about an hour, hour and a half on a good day. We waited for three hours to get a chicken sandwich is amazing chicken sandwich. In fact, you can talk to John, John Looney. He's gone next week and he comes back. They have different levels of heat. He actually ate the hottest one they make. You have to wear rubber gloves when you eat it. And no joke, it's a two to three day recovery. Right, Denise, where are you at? She was watching her husband lay on the couch moaning in pain, right? But he said it was worth it. I don't know. So anyway, but it's really interesting the way this is set up. It's in this, this kind of strip mall that comes off one of the streets in Chinatown. And so there's all these businesses around Howlin' Ray's. And so when we first got there, I was looking around and there's like, of course, Chinese food. There's some Thai food places. There's ice cream place. There's a coffee place. There's all these different businesses. And at first I thought, man, I feel really bad for these businesses because there's this huge line for Howlin' Ray's before it even opens. And so we're standing there and I thought, man, this is, they probably are complaining to the landlord saying, hey, Howlin' Ray's is killing our business. And then as we waited for three hours, I realized the opposite is true. Because when you get to Highland Rays and you're hungry, and then you have to wait for three hours, and all these businesses you go by have no lines in them, what do you think they're there for? They're there to feed off the line. And sure enough, I'll tell you, most, almost every person in our group, and I watch everybody else do it, you're like, oh, I'm getting hungry. So you go over and you get some ice cream. And they're like, oh, I'm going to try that coffee. Oh, I want to go to the juice bar. Oh, I want to try this. And I'm watching people peel off the line periodically, and they're going into the businesses. And I can tell this is the place the businesses want to be. Why? Because they realize the longer the line is at Howlin' Ray's, the better their business is. Why? Because they provide an alternative and a distraction to why people are there. Now, what they're hoping is that you'll wait so long and you'll eat so much that by the time you get to the register at Howlin' Ray's, you won't be hungry anymore at all, which is a whole waste of the whole experience. And I think the enemies does the same thing in our life. He says, if I fill believers' lives full of distractions, they'll never get to the purpose of why they exist. They'll never get to what God wants to do. They'll think that they've done what God wants them to do, but all they've been doing is going along the distractions. Why? Because you and I don't do well when we wait. We find something else to distract us. That's why when we hear the final words of Jesus, you and I have to listen to what he's saying because this is extremely important about what he says about our life and about our church and about our future together. So if you have your Bibles, let me read these few verses and then we'll walk through them together. So Luke continues in verse 6 and he says, So when they came together, they asked him, Lord, 
Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, uh, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And we'll stop there and just look at, at these verses. So what I want to begin with is this process that you and I have to understand that we are distracted from the main purpose of why we exist. Now, why do you and I, if you're a follower of Jesus, why are we still here and why, is this church, why does church still go on and why are our lives perpetuated even though we know that obviously in this passage it tells us Jesus is going to come back, he left and he's going to come back, but why are we still here? What is God's purpose in keeping us still here? There's two primary purposes and it's in this passage and it's, it's, it has to do with things that you and I don't think are the purpose, we think they are the byproduct. We think they are the secondary value. They're the primary one. And that is ultimately to tell the story of God through the demonstration of power in our activity, in our life, and to tell the story of God through the words that God gives us as he demonstrates his story in our lives. It's to demonstrate his power and tell a story. That's why we're still here. And you know the reason we know that? If that's not what God wanted to do, this is what God's strategy for, for salvation and discipleship would look like. If he didn't want us still here for his purpose, you know what he'd do? He'd save our souls and then he'd kill us. It got really quiet. You're like, really? Why would we still be here? If we know eventually that if my, my soul belongs to Jesus because I've surrendered to him, then I know just as a matter of time when I die, I'm going to be with him. And if knowing my, my nature and you're just like me, that when we have a long period of time in between what God is doing now and God's doing then, we find a way to mess it up royally, right? So why wouldn't his strategy be, I'm going to save him and I'm going to take him right out of the world? Why wouldn't he do that? Because he's not finished. And he calls us as his people at every season of our lives to demonstrate his power through activity and to tell his story through our words. That's why we're still here. Nothing else is as important as that. Things are important, but that is why we're here. So if we understand that from this passage, then why don't we do that and why haven't we accomplished this long time ago? Because we're distracted. What keeps us Three things I want to highlight from this passage. What keeps us from fulfilling God's purpose? What keeps us from demonstrating his power and telling his story through our words? What keeps us from that? First thing is this, confusion. We're confused. And by the way, confusion didn't start with us. It happened 2,000 years ago. So get this. We know Jesus has spent 40 days after his resurrection with his followers telling them, remember earlier last week, talking about what? The kingdom of God. 40 days of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is advancing. You guys are going to see, see the kingdom of God work through you. Jesus is like giving them this crash course on the kingdom of God for 40 days. And what's their first question? Jesus, when are you going to restore the kingdom back to Israel? I think his response is really very patient, very measured. He's just spent 40 days and his whole life on earth talking about the kingdom of God, and they're like, uh, when do we get our place in the world back? When do we get our political power back? When do we get our nation back? When do we get our land back? And Jesus is like, you guys don't get it? This isn't about Israel. 
This is about the world. This is about something much broader than what you think it's about. It isn't about this small little corner of the world. This is about the kingdom of God, which has to do with the entire world. They're confused. Do you and I ever get confused about what God's desire is for us? We all get confused. In fact, if we were to take a poll right now and I'd ask you, what is the will of God? What is the purpose of God? We would come up with 100 different answers. But I can tell you, I'll tell you how you know what you think the will of God is or the purpose of God in the world is. It's the way you pray. The way you pray reveals more about yourself than you would even know. Because for many of us, our prayer life, although every once in a while it will escape the boundaries of this, but it stays pretty close within these boundaries, can be summed up in this phrase, God, bless me. That's the focus of our prayer life is I need more money. I need a better job. I need a better spouse. I need a better house. I need a better car. Uh, I want better relationships. I don't want to be sick anymore. And so are those prayers bad? No. But if we only live there, we won't get beyond that because some of us will actually expand beyond that. And it isn't just God bless me. We'll actually say, God, bless them. Bless others. But usually what we mean by others, we mean the people we know, the people we love, the people that are close to us, the people that are like us. We pray for those people. But if your prayer life ever breaks the boundaries of bless me and bless others, you know what it'll eventually get to? The purpose of God in the world, which is what? Bless the world. Do you remember back when God called Abraham in the Old Testament? He said, your descendants will be a blessing. And he wasn't talking about more money in their pockets. He knew the blessing of God was coming through Israel, uh, coming through Abraham's line that eventually would have the nation of Israel, which Jesus would come out of, and Jesus would come to save the world. That's the blessing. And so that was already embedded way, way back at the beginning of all things, and God was pushing this forward. And so now for us to realize that, that God loves the world, and if all we're concerned with is God blessing us and God blessing those that we know and love, then we've missed the purpose of why we're here. Because God will do that. He'll bless people. But we might never actually touch the purpose of why God has us still here on this planet. Second thing, look at verses 9 and 10. Believe it or not, there's consumer in this, consumerism in this, in this passage. What also keeps us from fulfilling God's purpose is consumerism. So this is a consistent thing with the people of God. So in verses 9 and 10, so what happens? <clears throat> Jesus rises up, pretty crazy stuff, right? They all, they all know he rose from the dead, but now he's doing a new trick, right? He's rising up and going into the clouds, and he's disappearing. What do they do when he goes into the clouds? Stand there, kind of looking up like, wow, that was impressive. What's the next trick, Jesus? Are you going to come back out of the clouds? Are you going to do something else for us? You know that's what they're thinking. That's why they're standing there, because they're not quite sure. What do we do? And we, I know this is true, because if you go back into the Gospels, you realize that Peter, James, and John were kind of the inner three with Jesus. They had the same mentality. If you remember, there's a story where Jesus transfigured, which means he actually kind of pulled back the curtain a little bit and showed them an element of his glory, of who he was. And Peter, James, and John were on this, this mountain with him. And what's the first thing Peter does? He's all, hey, let's build some tents. Let's hang out. Let's go camping with Jesus. We're going to stay here. Why? Because this is so good. This is where we want to be. And Jesus goes, no, Peter, you're not getting it. It's not about hanging out here. There's more work to be done. What is that mentality? That mentality looks at Jesus as a purveyor of goods and services. It looks at Jesus as a transaction, that I get what I want from Jesus. Jesus does the miracles. Jesus does the good stuff in my life. And then I go live my life the way I want to live it. That's the way we do it. How do I know that's true? Because I know it's true in my life, and I know it's the way that we treat a lot of the things that have to do with church and following Jesus. 
Like, for example, like the, sometimes the way that we treat, uh, treat the way that we connect on a Sunday morning, things like community groups, is that we'll always ask this question. It doesn't work for me because there's nothing in it for me. Oh, what is that? That's transactional. That's like going to an ATM, putting your card in, putting your code in, and getting money out and walking away. What is it? It's a transaction. That's consumerism. It isn't about relationship, which means I'm not in this just for me. I'm in this for collectively for us. It's so funny when, when, when I'll have people come to me and say, oh man, Pastor John, that message was so good and I wish my friend was here so I'm going to text them and tell them they should have been here because they missed it. What if we're just here? What if it isn't somebody missed it and you have to go online and get it? But, because sometimes we'll make a value, I mean, hear me, I'm not talking about you have to be here every Sunday otherwise Jesus doesn't love you. It got really quiet in a hurry here. What I am saying is this, it's a values decision. So we'll treat church, I'm going to go, and I'm going to get good, good worship. Hopefully the team's on, and Danny's got a good set, and Pastor John's got a great message, and then I'm going to go live my life. What is that? It's not church. It's a transaction. Because what happens is your life will never change out there because you've just gotten what you think you need, and it just perpetuates itself. Do you know what the lie of consumerism is? Is that it never satisfies. But we think that it does. So they're waiting for Jesus to do another trick. Sometimes we're just waiting for Jesus to do another trick. We're waiting for him to do something else for us. But Jesus reminds us of something, of what is the most important. What do we make what's important? But what is more important? Jesus reminds us this, Matthew chapter 6, verses 31 to 33. You and I are always about what we can get and what we think we need and what surrounds us, but Jesus is about something greater. So he says this, Don't worry and ask yourselves, Will we have anything to eat? Will we have anything to drink? Will we have any clothes to wear? Listen to what Jesus says in verse 32. Only people who don't know God are always worried about such things. We know the God of the universe. Then he says in verse 33, but more than anything else, put God's work first. The other translation says kingdom, and then do what, and do what he wants. His kingdom is righteousness. Then the other things will be yours as well. If you and I go after the consumerism and the transaction, the things that we want we'll never get. But if we go after God, the things that we need we'll always have. We've just turned it upside down, and we live, up, we live backwards from what God wants. We went, me first. got to start with me first. If I don't take care of me, then I can't. No, 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 no. No, him first, focusing on him, and then he will pour out his spirit and his blessing on us in such a way. Why? Because it's about his glory. It's not. And in his glory, my needs are met. Not my needs first, but it's his glory. And if we get that one right, then we won't have to worry about dealing with consumerism in our life, which leads to the third thing. And that is in verse 11, what also keeps us from fulfilling God's purpose is complacency. So, verse 11, Jesus goes up and they're standing there so long that, from what we can tell, it says two men in the passage, but we'll actually, a couple angels show up. And I even, you know, of course, this is a loose translation, but they're looking at him thinking, what are you guys doing? He, he already told you, Holy Spirit's going to come in power, and we're telling you, he went up and he's going to come back, so why are you still standing here? Like, move on now. Why? Because we just want to stay here. We just, we, this is good stuff. We don't want to go anywhere. We just want to stay here. And, you know, I, I've, I've discovered in my life that there's this process. When we come to know Jesus, we were passionate. We were desperate. We were hungry. We were broken. And we needed God to show up. And then once we get saved, we don't do anything else. We just come complacent. We just kind of hang out. Remember last week, and this is true, I said there's two ways the enemy will work against resurgence. One will be through apathy, which says, I do nothing, and resistance, which says, I won't do that. 
And if that is in us, that means you and I can't possibly go through this journey together and remain the same. When I was praying this week, in fact, it was the church council was praying intently on Wednesday about this whole process. And as we were praying, the Lord really prompted me and said, listen, I'm going to bring a flood that does not destroy. We've just seen the destructive water, what water can do through a typhoon and through a hurricane. But God's saying, I'm going to bring a flood. And we sang about it. The song we sang about, about gracious tempest, about there's a flood that God wants to bring through the power of his Holy Spirit that touches every area of our life but does not destroy. Anybody ever had a flood in their house? We did. Mark Garcia knows all about it because he was the one that helped rebuild the house when it was destroyed. Water gets everywhere, everywhere. Now that's bad when you have a flood in your house, but it's good when the image of the Spirit is water. But here's the question. Are you trying to pile sandbags in corners of your life so that water won't get there? Because we do. But he's bringing a flood, which means, God, I'm going to change 75%, but I'm holding back 25% for myself because I don't want, I don't, I'm going to be the same there. I'll never be the same. Glory to glory. I mean, shh. If the worship songs didn't speak, I probably didn't have to preach today. We all got it in four songs, right? <laughs> if we're, if we're going to really embrace the Spirit, that means that I can't remain the same. I can't stay in the same place. I can't be complacent. I can't just stare up into heaven and hope that something wonderful happens. I have to take a step forward in what God's doing in my life. Maybe if, if we could reconfigure some of the, 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 the way that we build stadiums in our, in our culture, we might get this. See, we are convinced of this. That even the way that we do church, and this is just out of not out of value, I think this is out of necessity. We have seats where you come and you sit. There's no seats in the kingdom of God. It's like if you were to walk into a stadium, the first thing you and I do when we walk into a stadium or arena is we're like, where's my seat? The second thing we ask is, is it a good seat? Why? Because I want a good view of the floor, of the field, or whatever it is. You want that, right? But when you walk into the stadium of the kingdom of God, guess what? There's no stands. There's no seats because there's no spectators. There's no fans. Just players. So when you step onto the field, you don't wake your way to the seats. You step right into the middle of what God is doing. And I wish we could do that. I wish there was a way to, to do church in this size and not have us always sit facing forward, spectating at what's happening on the stage. Because it sends the wrong message. The message is that all of us are in the game. All of us are vital players. All of us are a part of what God is doing. And so we can't remain the same. We're active. We're in the game. Now, there's, there's three other things of how do you actually shift to fulfill God's purpose, understanding that God's purpose is to, to, to demonstrate his story, his power through our activity, and to tell his story through our words. Three things. The first thing, look at verse 8. Receive God's power. Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. We talked a little bit about that last week. What is power? Here's a simple definition it's the ability to do things through strength, skill, resources, or authorization, which includes miracles, influence, courage, giftings, authority on behalf of Jesus to represent him. That's power. All of those are things that you and I cannot do on our own. We can't. We're desperate for power. And it isn't just power for us to wield it for our own good. It's the power of God to fulfill his purpose. And when Jesus says, by the way, go into all the world and preach the gospel and make disciples of all nations, you're like, oh, sure, easy job. Not at all. It's impossible. It can't happen apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. But here's the issue. Why do we need power? There's a million reasons, but I'll tell you one of the reasons we need power today, and I talked about this last week, is because we're afraid. The biggest barrier 
to the advance of the kingdom of God and the fulfillment of God's purpose in the world is not the enemy, it's not the world, it's the fear that resides in the people of God. I'm convinced that I've watched people disqualify themselves and are afraid because they don't want to push into what God's doing and we'll come up with a million reasons of why we're afraid and we won't call it fear, we'll call it 10,000 other things, but at the core of who we are, we're afraid. And fear always brings about paralysis because fear says it's better to do nothing than to risk everything, which is a lie. Jesus calls us to risk everything, to give up everything. That's why if you want to find your life, what do you have to do? You have to lose your life. You can't play it safe. So he brings power. So think about what are you and I afraid of? What, is, what drives the fear inside of us? I made a list that I think it's been true in my own life, but I think it's true for all of us, and that is I think we're afraid of danger. I mean, there is obviously a good sense of like, you know, living with respect for the fact that you don't want to do things that are stupid dangerous, but there are things that are not stupid dangerous, and following Jesus is sometimes dangerous. That means that you have to be willing to risk. But how many decisions do you and I make based on whether something is dangerous or not? And if it's dangerous, then it couldn't possibly be the will of God. <coughs> Read the book of Acts. What are we afraid of? Well, not that I don't have, I don't have anybody particularly in mind, but I've heard this. I can't go to Skid Row because it's dangerous. I can't go to Haiti because, man... It's dangerous. They barely even have a government. We're afraid, right? Because there's danger. When in following Jesus is danger ever the issue that should hold us back? When? Never. But it drives us. It keeps us complacent. How about discomfort? I think that's probably the biggest one for us. One of the biggest ones is I don't want to be uncomfortable. I don't want to break my routine. I don't want to go out of my way. I don't want to lose sleep. I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to, I have a good thing going. I, I want to remain comfortable. We, we, anything that pushes in our comfort, man, we push back hard on that one. Why? Because we value comfort. And anything that's going to bring discomfort in our life, we run away from. That's what our life is built on. That's why technology always, what, goes after doing things that make us more comfortable. I mean, sometimes I feel bad that I can pull out my phone and control half the things in my house. It's great technology, but you know what it really is? It's because I'm lazy, <laughs> right? It's too hard to walk up the stairs to change the thermostat. I'll just pull out my phone and my app and change it to what's comfortable for me, right? Anybody relate? Oh, come on, three people? I'm not the only one that can control my thermostat from my phone, right? <coughs> Have you guys come into this century yet? I know there's really cool things. <laughs> You've heard of the iPhone, right? Okay. But discomfort, we don't like that. How about inconvenience? Oh, I don't want to be inconvenienced in my life. I want things to be easy and accessible and convenient. That's like, man, why did you wait for three hours for a chicken sandwich? That's really inconvenient. We don't want to be inconvenienced. We hate waiting in traffic. We hate waiting in any line. Why? Because I'm busy and I have so many things to do. And I don't want to be inconvenienced. We don't want to be inconvenienced by God. God will mess up your schedule. Like, oh, no, 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 God, that doesn't work for me. How about this one? We're afraid of embarrassment. I don't want to tell somebody about how much God loves them and if they're sick, actually pray for them and believe that God's going to heal them because what if God doesn't do anything? I'm going to look like an idiot. Why would I ever do that? By the way, when God calls you to reach people through your words and through your actions, it's on him, not you. 
if you pray and somebody doesn't get healed, you're not the person healing them. God is. So don't worry about it. Just do it. If, if we were just obedient, I bet you we'd see more healings. I bet you we'd see more people come to Jesus. Why? Because we'd get over our embarrassment that somehow it's going to look bad on me. What a, how does it make God look when his church is asleep and we're not willing to go out and reach people? God says, no, it's time to wake up. It's time for you to go after this. And maybe this one, this is probably the biggest one we get, and that is we feel inadequate. We see 10 people who are more gifted and, and more equipped and more called than we are, and we're like, I can't do what they do. But yeah, you know what? You can do anything God wants you to do through the power of the Holy Spirit because he's the one doing it. But oh, I, just, I just can't do it. God knows that. That's why every time somebody gives an excuse, he just reminds us, yeah, you are filled with the same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. You can do what God's called you to do. He gives you the power to do that. Now, here's the thing, and I, I've shared this before, but let me just remind you, this is why we need, in fact, when you read through the book of Acts, you'll see many, many times when the Holy Spirit comes, they're, they're filled with power, but one of the outcomes of power is courage. They have courage. Fear is gone now. They're able to do what they're going to do. They're bold. They have courage because God has filled them. They're not afraid, and this is the most important thing, they're not afraid to lose their life. They're not. Read to the book of Acts. That's one of the things that pumps me up. Every time you read a story, like, these people didn't, they really didn't care. I mean, Paul gets pulled out of a city. He's stoned. They think he's dead, not by smoking pot, by the way. He's stoned with rocks. And he gets up, and he goes back into the same city. In my, my mind, I'm thinking, Paul, that's stupid. Go the other way. Because he wasn't worried about if he's going to die. Why? Because this is the conclusion I've come to. If you are a follower of Jesus, you trust him. You're not going to leave this planet the day a day before he wants you to. I want you to hear that. We live in such fear that every day, any, a million things could happen, and we try to control that. You know, the Bible actually says in Hebrews that death is an appointment. It uses the word appointment. Who makes the appointment for death? God does. The enemy doesn't take anyone out of this world. He can't do that. He can't touch your soul. But God, so if that's true, then why am I worried about, oh, I can't do this and I can't do that? Why? Because I might lose my life. One of the most freeing moments for me was probably about 12 years ago. I've shared this a million times, but when I was, I had it went through a season of time where flying freaked me out completely. And I love flying. I grew up wanting to be a pilot. I love airplanes. And I had a bad experience where one of the flights I was on, we lost altitude drastically and it freaked me out. So every time I got on a plane for a while, my hands would sweat. My, my heart would just like beat out of my chest and I just hang on for dear life. And that stinks when you're flying like long distances and you're just like in constant, Kim knows. Kim jokes with me, when we're about to take off, she slips her hand over like she's holding my hand, but she's not, she's just checking for sweat. That's all she's doing. <laughs> but one of the, it was one of those flights that was coming up out, out of uh, Oakland. I had, uh, we were up in, in Oregon. I had been at a conference down here and went through uh, Oakland. We were taking off in the middle of a pretty ser serious storm, lots of wind and rain. And so, I mean, from the moment we get off the ground, we're just getting knocked all over the sky. We're dropping. And, you know, everyone on one of those flights, you're like, oh, man. So I'm in like 10B, just like freaking out, thinking I'm going to die. And I went into a full-on panic attack. Nobody knew on the outside, but on the inside, I'm like literally, and then I started mumbling in tongues to myself, Jesus, save my life. I'm never going to see Kim. I'm never going to see Courtney or Jordan again. My life is over. I mean, I'm like full-on panicking. And I'm just, God, do something. Just cause the storm to calm. You know, that's what we're praying for, the storm to go away, right? That's, that's what we know God's at work. And God didn't take the storm away. In fact, he gave the answer to me that I was the exact opposite of what I was waiting to hear. And that's why I had to double take, like, God, are you sure? <laughs> he didn't use an audible voice, but he said to me, listen, if this plane goes down and you die, am I still God? 
And I'm like, that can't be God saying that because God would not say that. He would say, oh, I'm so sorry that the storm is really rough. I'm going to make it easier for you. We're going to smooth it out for you. No, he, he kept pushing in. If you die today, am I still God? And I said, yeah, you are. And he reminded me of that moment. You're not, not leaving this planet a day before I've ordained for you to leave this planet. So stop being so afraid. It changed me. It changed me because it's like, yeah, if the plane did go down, it would be horrible for my family and, and my friends. But God would still be God. Because in the time he gave me on this planet, he accomplished something of his purpose that contributed to the overall purpose that he has for the world throughout human history. So if you and I can get over our fear when we, when we experience the power of the Holy Spirit, we can fulfill God's purpose. Second thing, we fulfill God's purpose by telling God's story. He says, you're going to receive power. The Holy Spirit's going to come on you to do what? To be my witnesses. What is a witness? A witness is somebody who is present for situations and events that occur and then can share their firsthand experience with what they saw and what they experienced so other people can understand what happened. That's what a witness does. So Jesus says, you're going to be a witness to my story in this world for other people. Now, this is difficult. We struggle with this. What is it? I, I, I've heard people, I don't do witnessing. You don't do witnessing? I don't do witnessing either. Because we used phrases like, I'm not an evangelist, which means I don't have to tell anybody about Jesus. You know, the word evangelist doesn't appear anywhere in this passage. There are certain callings within the church that people have an evangelistic gift, but that doesn't let the rest of us off the hook for sharing the story of God with people. We're all supposed to do that. So what does that mean? This is so intimidating. Like, I don't, I don't know how to share the gospel. And so we, we create, no offense to any, any resource other, but we'll create classes. How to share the gospel. Make sure you get all the key elements in about Jesus' birth and his perfect life and his death on the cross and the redemption of all things and, and his resurrection and his coming again. And, all the, and those are wonderful things, but those are more of, of understanding what happened in a period of time in human history. The story of God is bigger, but the story of God is personal. People in our culture, for the most part now, are not going to care if you know every detail of the gospel story from the scriptures. Eventually, you will get there because that is where your story is rooted. But you know what they're asking? Does God make any difference? Is he even real? How do they know that he's real? Because you can give him evidence that he exists? Good luck with that one. Because someone will come along smarter than you and argue reasons why he doesn't exist. They're one of the main reasons you can share the story of God is because you have a story. You have a story. I think one of the best presentations of the gospel is actually in John chapter 9, verse 25. You remember the blind man that Jesus heals? And what happens when this guy gets healed? The religious leaders are furious. Jesus did it the wrong way. He did it on the wrong day. This guy's a sinner. He was born in sin. How can he say that God has done anything in his life? And after they're barraging him and trying to discredit Jesus, I love his response. All I know is I was blind, and now I can see. Sums it up. How do you argue with that? They all knew he was blind. They knew he was blind since birth. And now this guy can see. They're like arguing against the evidence in front of them. And all he says is, I don't have some great theological argument. All I know is I couldn't see, but now I'm staring at you, and I can see you. Jesus did something in me to make that happen. What is your story? Your story is, all I know is, God did this in my life. Because we always think, oh, well, that person has a great testimony. No, you have a great testimony because it's yours. 
Don't tell somebody else's story. Tell your story, which is embedded in God's story, which is the gospel. That is the most powerful thing when you sit down and you tell somebody what God did in your life. So maybe for you, I just made a list of things that are consistent, I think, with some of the things we experience. Especially for people who are dealing with these things. You say, I don't, all I know is I was an addict, but now I'm free. That is powerful, powerful testimony of the gospel. All I know is I was sick, but now I'm healed. All I know is I was a greedy thief, and, but now I'm a generous giver. All I know is I hated my enemies, but now I love them. All I know is I wanted to end my life, but now I've discovered life. All I know is I was guilty, but now I'm forgiven. All I know is I was lost, but now I'm found. All I know is I was afraid, but now I have courage. That's the gospel. That's sharing your story. Man, I was reminded powerfully of my own story about a week and a half ago. I was at a meeting um, with a bunch of leaders from uh, our, our, uh, our movement, for our Foursquare family, and happened to be sitting at a table with my former youth pastor that had probably one of the most... Uh, important kind of influences in my life in a certain season in my life and in, in particularly in the the wonderful years of junior high middle school you guys remember those and those of you who are still in that we pray for you to get delivered from middle school right but it was a rough season for me and I've shared the story before about how I dealt with severe anxiety in my life and how God set me free from that but but as I was sitting at the table I mean I've been in meetings and, and my youth pastor's name was Ralph Torres it was church on the way out in Van Nuys and and I Ralph and I've talked over the years but but I was just thinking I think you know I wonder if Ralph ever really knows the full impact of how God used him in my story. Because he, there were key points where he kind of saw one side, but so we're sitting there talking, I said, Ralph, I gotta tell you a couple of points in my life where you were present and God used you to change something in me. And so I told him what, what was going on when I was, I was going through anxiety, I faked an illness and literally got out of school, set my, my entire family was upside down, we had to go to a, a family psychologist, we went to medical doctors, we went through, the, I mean, our, our household was a mess. And so then my parents literally had, they had gotten to the end of what they knew what to do. And so they said, well, we're going to go take you and we're going to meet with Ralph and he's going to pray for you. And in my mind, I'm like, no. Because Ralph Torres has a very powerful prophetic gift and he reads people's mail. And I knew if I sat in an office with him and he looked and he started to pray, God would uncover everything in my life. So we showed up and that's exactly what happened. He started to look right at me and he goes, this is a lie. I'm like, shh, <laughs> they don't know. And literally for an hour, he just went through my life and just dismantled every barrier that I'd put up and then prayed, with, prayed for me at the end and I was fighting it all the way. And Ralph, that's the side that Ralph knew. I said, Ralph, I left that meeting hating you because you had exposed the lie in my life. But then a week later, realizing that God used you because it was a week later I was sitting in my third period English class when my anxiety was gone. One moment, my life was over, I was depressed, and it lifted never to return. And I told him that, and he's almost tearing up. And then another moment when I felt my first inkling of calling to some kind of full-time ministry, he was there to pray for me. These key moments. And so, in fact, if any of you, some of you might know, some of you have history at church on the way, you know Ralph. Ralph's not a touchy-feely guy. But Ralph looks at me and he goes, can I give you a hug? And I'm like, that is the Holy Spirit that, uh, that Ralph wants. <laughs> and so Ralph gets up and we just had this embrace. And I was like, thank you for being a part of the story that God is working out in my life. What is your story? What is it? People are, are, are more favorable to listen to your story than somebody else's story or a manufactured story that tries to get every single detail right. 
If somebody sees the power of your God in your story, they're going to want to know the bigger story. How did you get here? How did that happen to you? Because I want that to happen to me. Well, let me tell you how that happened to me. That's our story. That's what God calls us to do. We fulfill his purpose when we do that. And then the final thing, and the worship team will join us for, for one last song, is that we fulfill God's purpose when we love all people. So Jesus ends his words in verse 8 that we'll, but we'll have power to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. That's a very familiar phrase. If you've been in the church, we've heard that. But what does that mean? It's really important that Jesus is highlighting not a priority list, and he's not even necessarily highlighting geography. He's not giving his followers a geography lesson. He's talking about people, and they're represented by areas. But it isn't about their geography. What does that mean for us? That means that God has called us to love all people. Now let's walk through what Jesus says, because he's speaking to a group of Jewish followers back in the first century who would listen and go, yes, yes, yes. And then Jesus, like he always does, he goes too far. He does. And he starts saying things they don't want to hear. So let me just walk through this the way he would say this and what it relates to us. So so when he says Jerusalem, what does he mean by that? It means people that are close to you, near to you. So in Jerusalem, that means people that, what? That means primarily the Jewish culture, people who speak your language, eat the same kind of food, look like you, believe like you, act like you. Yeah, you're supposed to share the story and demonstrate my power with them. And we're like, yeah, got that one. And then he pushes a little bit further and he goes, okay, not just people like you, how about people that are generally near you, Judea, which is the general region they were in, which could be really equated to our, our overall region, our state, even our nation overall, that you would be called and you're like, yeah, I, I get that. We pray for people who are suffering from the effects of hurricane on the other side of the country. I get that. But then when he gets to the third thing, I can guarantee you they didn't like this because then Jesus said, Samaria. I guarantee, and they're like, oh, no, 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 no. Jerusalem, Judea, we get that. Samaria. What's Samaria? Samaria is the, the place that's filled with half-breeds with enemies, with people who aren't fully Jewish. They've compromised their faith. They're, they don't even know how to worship right. They're, they're not even pure. They're, they're, they're not even really worth, in fact, we know this to be true because they, the Jews hated the Samaritans. And when a, when a Jew had to go from point A to point B and, and the straight line took them through Samaria, they never took a straight line. They always walked around the perimeter. Why? Because they want to go near Samaritans. They're the enemy. They're the half-breeds. And Jesus says, and you will be my witnesses. Where? In Samaria amongst people that you don't like, that you hate, that you can't stand. You're going to love those people because that is my story for them. Why is that important for us? Because if we're honest, there's people we don't like. There's people that you, you're like, hey, I'm, I'm a good person. I like all kinds of people until that person that is those people to you walks into the room and you're like, oh. Now you don't show it outwardly, but maybe you're like, I didn't know they were going to be here. By the way, newsflash, heaven's going to be just like that. Oh, I didn't know they were going to be here. Yeah. Because they'll look at you and go, I didn't know you were going to be here either, right? But we have those people. So who are the Samaritans to you? Who are the people that you don't appreciate, that you don't like, that are your enemies? We have them in our culture all the time. Because then Jesus says, by the way, let's just go all the way here. And then he ends it with the phrase, to the end of the earth. 
Now, to a Jewish mind, the end of the earth was probably the end of the Roman Empire at that point. So this, this kind of place that they're at, taking it to the very extent of the world that you can get it to, which means everybody's included. But what it, to fulfill the purpose that God has for us means we have to challenge our own prejudice. And by the way, just spoiler alert on the book of Acts. If you don't think you have prejudice in you when you go through the book of Acts, if there's any in there, it will get exposed. Because the story of Acts is the story of the expansion of the kingdom of God and the spread of the gospel to people who are far away from God and people who are different and people who are, who are a challenge to be around. And God keeps spreading and spreading and spreading. We are Antioch Church. Antioch Church is the place, one of the initial places in the book of Acts where Gentiles who were marginalized by the Jews actually got access to the gospel. It's in our name. So what does that mean to us? That means we have to be willing to challenge our own stereotypes of people, our own prejudice about people, and be confronted with that. And we'll talk about that in the weeks ahead, but, but I want to close with this before we sing one last song. Something has to happen in us about the people around us. And let me tell you, you and I live at one of the most incredible moments in one of the most incredible nations in the history of the world. And it isn't because of our affluence. It isn't because of our privilege. It isn't because of our geography. It isn't because of our political system. It isn't any part of any of that. You know what it is? It's because God has positioned us in the world in such a season as this that the world is in our borders. I've said this before. You can't miss this. When Jesus says the ends of the earth, you're like, whoa, I don't want to go to the ends of the earth. That's too far. That's inconvenient, God. So you know what he does? He says, okay, I'll remove that excuse. The people that you can't go to their nation because it's closed, and if you walked into there to share the gospel, you might be beheaded or you might be uh, incarcerated and you might be persecuted. I'll just make it easier for you. I will bring them to you. They're here. Did you know that we went, did you know that one of the largest Chinese populations outside of China is where? It's the state of California. The highest concentration in the state of California of Chinese is the San Gabriel Valley and then LA County. Did you know the San Gabriel Valley is now more 50% Asian? You guys get that? You're like, well, I'm not Asian. That doesn't matter. That does. Because God loves Asians. God loves Arabs. God loves people. So I'm going to close with this. Listen. Front row is well representative in ethnicity today, okay? <laughs> but before we get so worried about, oh, I don't feel called to be a missionary to go so much way. By the way, we're all missionaries. Location's the only thing we have to decide where we're at. But here's the thing. God has provided an opportunity. So I'm in the process of connecting with a young woman. It's incredible. She was born in Iran, but she's Syrian. Her parents were Syrian, but she was born in Iran. And through this beautiful thing called immigration, she ended up in our country. And she has a heart for Syrians living among us, primarily in our backyard. She lives in this little, I don't even think it's a city, it's an area of the San Fernando Valley called Winnetka. If you go on Google Maps, you know how far Winnetka is from this building? It's 14 miles. That's it. She wants to plant a church to reach Arab-speaking Syrians living in Winnetka our backyard you don't have to even go to the Middle East but maybe some of us will because over this year you're going to see Zach Ballin who is the, the four square missionary in Turkey that we support 
He's going to be on video a few times this year talking about unreached people groups, people that don't have the gospel or the scriptures in their language, they don't have access to it, and how as a church we can do that. It may be going, but it's going to include praying, but it may be not going to the Middle East. It may be going over the hill into the valley to reach people who need to know Jesus, who are far from him and are loved by him and God's called us. So would you close your eyes? We're going to sing a song in a moment as we conclude. I want you to, to this song, when I, it's like an eight-year-old song. It's not even new, but you may not know. We've done this a couple times, but if it's unfamiliar to you, I encourage you when, you, when you encounter a song that's unfamiliar, just listen, read the words, let them settle in. This song calls for the walls and the barriers to be torn down so that all creation can be led back to who Jesus is that comes through us and so as we as we sing this song in the morning as we listen i'm going to encourage you to let this be our anthem of our call from god to let the barriers fall the barrier of fear the barrier of inconvenience the barrier of all the things that we put up so that god can use us by his power through his spirit which by the way we'll jump into acts 2 next week and we're going to talk about the power of god in our lives but now is the time to be ready we as we wait and anticipate his power in our lives so jesus would you come and not, not put a period, not seal an end, but Lord, would you catapult us from this moment into our lives as we lift up an anthem to you about tearing down the walls so that all people can come to know you and know your love. Thank you, Jesus.